This episode of Hitch to Homicide deals with the subject of rape and murder of minor children. Listener discretion is advised. In the early 70s, over the span of two years, three young girls were taken in broad daylight just blocks from their homes in Rochester, New York. All with alliterative first and last names, all from broken homes, all dumped in areas with the same initial of their name. There were a few who were eyed as suspects, but even now, 50 years later, with DNA, advanced fingerprinting, and advances in criminal profiling, this case is still unsolved. And the killer could still be walking among us. This is the story of Carmen Cologne, Wanda Wachowicz, and Michelle Mayenza, the Alphabet Murders. Hey, y'all. I'm Chris Cowder. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody yes welcome 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 and for our friends in luganda where is luganda <laughs> luganda is in south africa okay yep keol 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 wonderful there you go or wherever you are listening be sure to like rate review subscribe to the podcast right we appreciate your support and your comments and your emails yep so much absolutely and we love keeping in touch with you guys on a day-to-day basis. Yes, we so do. So if you want to be in touch with us, go join the In-Laws and Outlaws, the H2H In-Laws and Outlaws. It's a closed Facebook group. But a family. A very big, loving, true crime family. <laughs> yes, it is. Just answer a couple questions and you are in. Yep. And if you are asking your friends to come join, make sure they go and answer the questions as well. Yes. This case is 50 years old this year. Oh, wow. And they are no closer to finding a killer than they were back then. Really? It's crazy, right? Wow. And I know how you hate open-end cases. I hate unsolved cases. Yeah. But it's the 50-year anniversary. At the end, I'm going to give you some information if you know anything or, you know, you think you have a clue for the New York State Police. I'm going to give you that information because they're still looking for tips. If you see something, say say something. something. That's right. (laughs) Before I get started, let me thank some sources. The Statesman Journal, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, All That's Interesting, Oxygen.com, Real Crime, and the New York Times. Nice. Well, you ready? I am. Let's do it. There's no good way to start this podcast other than to tell you about our victims because Mm. we don't have a killer. Okay. So I'm really going to focus on these girls. Okay. Carmen Cologne was born on February 1st, 1961. By the way, what a great name. Yeah. Carmen Cologne. Yep. Her family is Puerto Rican, and Carmen's mother, Gillianus, was only 16 years old when she had her. Mm. Carmen was born in Rochester, but she was taken back to Puerto Rico when she was just a baby. Okay. Her parents brought her back to Rochester in 1966, and then her mom and her dad separated. Okay. Her mother really cares for her. She loves her very much. Carmen had a hard time in school. She was a little behind. 
she had a hard time keeping up. Okay. And there were some people who said that she was mentally challenged just a little bit. Mm. Her uncle has said that she was emotionally immature as well, meaning she was nine, but she acted more like she was seven. Gotcha. And I read that and I thought, well, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old kind of act pretty much the same. I still act like a nine-year-old. Twelve. You're a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> I'm a 14-year-old boy, apparently, though, with my sense of humor. So we fit together perfectly, honey. Like like peas and carrots. Peas and carrots, peanut butter and jelly. You're the cheese to my macaroni. <laughs> there you go. But she's a tiny little thing. She's 65 pounds. She's got long brown hair, brown eyes. Carmen also suffered from nightmares or night terrors. Mm. And after her mother and father break up, she goes to live with her grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Felix Cologne. Her grandparents were really worried about neighborhood drug abuse, and they only allowed her to play with her cousins, and she was only allowed to play with neighborhood kids and inside their fenced yard area. Gotcha. Now, because Carmen went to Puerto Rico as a baby, her English is not so great. She spoke very little English. And she went to special classes at PS5 in Rochester. Her teacher said she was always smiling. She was always very friendly. Mm. On Tuesday, November 16th, 1971, Carmen's mother came by her parents' home where her daughter's living. She asks Carmen to go to a drugstore just two blocks away to get a prescription filled for her nine-month-old half-sister. And this isn't something new for Carmen because... Since she'd been living with her grandparents, her grandfather would ask her to run the occasional errand. Sure. And Carmen loved doing it. And how old, again, was she? Nine. Nine nine years old. Okay. In fact, running errands was one of her favorite things to do for her grandfather. Okay. Now, in one source, it said she was picking up a prescription not for her half-sister, but for her grandfather. Mm. It doesn't matter. She goes to this drugstore. Sure. She leaves her grandparents' home. She's wearing green pants, light blue socks, and white sneakers with a red cardigan with a black collar and a full-length red overcoat. Okay. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it's kind of misty and rainy out. Okay. Carmen walked to the Jack's Drugstore in the Bullhead area of Rochester, and she puts the prescription bottle on the counter along with her mother's Medicaid card, and she leaves because they say it's going to take a little bit to fill this prescription. Right. And she tells the store owner, Jack Corgan, quote, I got to go. I got to go, end quote. Okay. She was last seen at the shopping center entering a parked car close to the pharmacy Mm. at 4.20 p.m. She was a little bit hyper, and that behavior wasn't all that odd that day. So it was hard to know if she was going to see somebody, if she was going to a waiting person, or if she was just, you know, excited to be there and didn't want to stick around. Right. I got to go. I got to go. Sure. When Carmen didn't make it back home in 30 minutes, her uncle went out looking for her. And by 7.30 p.m., they called the police. Mm. But what Carmen's family doesn't know is that she's seen again after the pharmacy, this time on Route 490, but at the Route 36 interchange near a rest area. People see a little girl suddenly appear out of the darkness along the shoulder of the road. She is naked from the waist down, and she's trying to hail passing cars. Why? Nobody stopped. And these drivers see this car backing up on the shoulder to get to Carmen. And nobody stopped. Exactly. Wow. Nobody stopped. Wow. And here are some of the things that these drivers said, because I went to the old newspapers and looked it up. All right. Quote, I couldn't believe what I saw, end quote. 
Quote, I thought the little girl had been let out of the car to go to the bathroom, end quote. A third driver thought about going back but changed his mind. Hmm. A fourth said, quote, I felt someone behind was in a better position, end quote. Yeah. Someone behind me was in a better position. Yeah, let somebody else take care of it. And finally, quote, I didn't expect anything sinister, end quote. Hmm. Now, there's like one video that talks about this, and they're saying, you know, of course now, nowadays, if they saw a little girl half naked from the waist down running away from a car, everybody would stop. Yeah. Yeah. But right then, no. In the early 70s, yeah. they were like, nothing bad's happening. Yeah, people were still uh, hitchhiking and, you know. Yeah. At this point, when Carmen's running away, she's 12 miles from home. Mm. So how did he gain, how did this driver gain control of Carmen and then lose control of Carmen? Right. She's nine years old, who's emotionally more like a seven-year-old, and she doesn't really speak English all that well. Right. So if she's out of the car and there are all of these other cars whizzing by at 75 miles per hour, that was another one. Well, I was going 75 miles per hour. Right. Because remember, the speed limit was super high back then. Yeah. How did she get out of the car? Yeah. Uh, Okay. But after she's out of the car, why does her abductor not just, like, peel out of there, just get the heck fire out of there? Sure, yeah. And I think it's because she knew him and she would be able to point a finger Mm. at her abductor. Yeah. He got her in the car, right? Right. So she's reported missing at 7.30 p.m. that night. Police and neighbors searched the neighborhood for two days and went house to house. They went through vacant buildings. They went through vacant fields. No Carmen. Two days later, two little boys are riding their bicycles on Stearns Road in the town of Churchville. They see what they think is a broken doll in a ditch, in a gully along the side of the road. Mm. It's Carmen. Her body is lying against a boulder. She's wearing only her sweater, socks, and sneakers. Her coat was in a culvert 300 feet from her body. Her trousers were only discovered on November 30th close to the service road near the rest area where so many people saw her. Wow. There are no bindings on her, nothing around her hands or feet. It looks like she was dropped off there, like he just wants to get rid of the body. Sure. She was manually strangled from the front, which means it's very personal. Yeah. Her abductor or her killer was looking her in the eye when he killed her. Mm. An autopsy revealed that in addition to being raped, the child suffered a fracture to her skull and one of her vertebrae before she'd been manually strangled to death. Mm. Furthermore, her body had been extensively scratched by fingernails. Really? Police talked to more than 200 people. They got over 300 tips. They picked up known sex offenders. They questioned them. But there were no arrests. But there were rewards. Okay. On November 21st, two days after Carmen's body is found, a penciled note is found scribbled on a men's room door on the sixth floor of a downtown building. Quote, I killed a 10-year-old girl. Who will be next? End quote. Man. In early 1972, five large billboards go up alongside major Rochester expressways. Each had an eight-foot-high picture of Carmen alongside the headline, Do you know who killed Carmen Cologne? Mm. Each offered a $6,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Carmen's murder or murderers, in addition to displaying the telephone hotline number and the address, encouraging people to submit anonymous information. Right. And even though they got a few leads, 
Not one of them panned out. Really? Not one. Wow. So her name is Carmen Cologne. She's dropped in Churchville. Three C's. Wow. 17 months later, 11-year-old Wanda Lee Walkowitz and her friend are chased on Saturday, March 30th. There was a man in the bushes. What they saw was that he had buckles on his shoes. This is how it's reported. Hmm. But by the time police show up to the area, the man's gone. Wanda is the daughter of Joyce and the late Richard Wachowitz, who died at the age of 30 from a heart attack. Oh, gee whiz. A heart attack at 30. Man. Wanda is born on August 4th, 1961. She's only 4'7". She has bright red hair and blue eyes. She weighed about 70 pounds. She was an active little girl, very smart and athletic. She loved to play kickball. But apparently she didn't have a lot of close friends. Then on April 2nd, 1970, a few days after Wanda and her friend are chased by this man, Wanda was on her way home from the Hillside Deli on Conkey Avenue. She'd left her house on Avenue D on the east side of Rochester. And according to the owner of the delicatessen, she purchased groceries that her mom had given her a list to buy. Mm -hmm. It's 5.15 p.m. Okay. Before she leaves, she tells Bill Van Orden, a clerk at the deli, quote, hurry up, I'm in a hurry, end quote. Hmm. Wanda left the deli and started walking north towards her house. Wanda was reported missing by her mother, Joyce, at 8 p.m. after she didn't come home from the deli. Police immediately launch an intense search to locate Wanda, and almost 50 detectives searched several square miles around her home and the delicatessen, and areas around the Genesee River, where she used to play a lot. These searches failed to locate her, although several neighborhood residents recalled seeing Wanda struggling to carry the bag of groceries when she's walking just north of Avenue B. Three of her classmates specifically saw her bracing the bag against a fence so she could get a better grip on the bag, on a better grip on the brown bag. Sure. Yeah. And as she's doing this, a brown vehicle drives past her. Mm -hmm. Now, Wanda is fully clothed when she's found by a police officer at 10.15 a.m. the following day. She's been discarded at the base of a hillside along an access road to State Route 104 in Webster, approximately seven miles from Rochester. Okay. Wanda Wachowicz found in Webster. The position of her body indicated she had likely been thrown from a moving car with her body rolling down the embankment. Mm. The autopsy revealed she had been sexually assaulted, then strangled from behind with a ligature, most likely a belt. Mm. And several defensive wounds on her body showed that she had been fighting off her murderer. Wow. Also, her body had been redressed after death. The autopsy also revealed traces of semen and pubic hair on her body. Furthermore, several strands of white cat fur were found on her clothing. Really? Even though Wanda's family did not own a white cat. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Just like Carmen Cologne, the investigators established an anonymous telephone hotline, and they distributed all these flyers throughout the Rochester area just begging for information. Sure. And this time, a reward of $10,000 is offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Wanda's murderer. Okay. 
Now, these police inquiries produced an eyewitness who informed the investigators that as Wanda walked home from the delicatessen on the evening of April 2nd, he saw her standing alongside the passenger door of this large brown vehicle conversing with the driver. Hmm. Now, remember, her classmates actually saw her adjusting her groceries. And they described a brown vehicle. And they saw a brown car drive past. Right. Right. Two individuals. Okay. Now, this eyewitness was unable to obtain a clear view of who was driving the car, but the location of the sighting was just two-tenths of a mile from Wanda's house. Right. Then another person contacted the investigators through the anonymous hotline and said that she had observed a man forcing a little red-haired girl matching Wanda's description into a light-colored Dodge Dart on Conkey Avenue between 5.30 p.m. and 6 p.m., this is on the evening of her disappearance. So, so many things are all sounding exactly alike, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, during that time, especially in the 70s, um, the color brown for those cars, especially a Dodge Dart, was kind of that light milk chocolatey kind of Yeah, color. tan. Yeah. Yeah, the cars in the early 70s weren't that great. I mean, <laughs> unless you were Starsky and Hutch and you were driving the Grand Torino. Yeah. Right? I had a chocolate brown Pinto wagon. <laughs> I had a bright orange... 1973 Chevy Vega. There you go. With no power steering and no air conditioning. I had rack and pinion. (laughs) So I was moving up, baby. Kids today, they don't know what it's like (laughs) to have to drive that first car that you get back then, like we got back then. Now, in the beginning, the Rochester Police Department, they kind of poo-pooed any idea that the murders of Carmen and the murder of Wanda were ever connected at all. Really? Yeah. Hmm. There was one sheriff sergeant who was assigned to investigate Carmen's murder. Because remember, this is still an active and open case. Sure. He's reassigned to the task force that was implemented to investigate Wanda's murder. Okay. And he's the one who says, wait a minute. Yeah. This is a little too similar. Right. In September of 1973, local television network WOKR announced plans to broadcast a televised reconstruction of Wanda's abduction and subsequent recovery of her body. Okay. So they're walking everybody through this. This was like a big deal back in 1973. I mean, they're really setting this whole thing up. Yeah. It was a 30-minute episode. It was broadcast on the 21st of October, and they made all these public appeals for witnesses to contact authorities. And the program resulted in the Rochester Police Department getting about 200 phone calls from the public. But again, there were no useful leads. Hmm. They were still at square one. Seven months later, on the night of November 26, 1973, 11-year-old Michelle Mayenza was reported missing by her mother, Carolyn, after she failed to return home from school. Mm. Michelle was born on February 3rd, 1962 in Rochester to parents Carolyn and Christopher. She attended PS 33 at 500 Webster Avenue, and Michelle was last seen by her classmates at approximately 3.20 p.m., walking alone from school to a shopping plaza located close to school with the intention of getting her mom's purse that she had left at a store there earlier that day. Okay. So she's on a little errand right right after school. Right. Approximately 10 minutes later, a witness observed Michelle sitting in the passenger seat of a beige or tan vehicle traveling at high speed on Ackerman Street before turning onto Webster Avenue. Wow. Now, according to this witness, 
Michelle was crying. Mm -hmm. Now, at 5.30 p.m. on November 26, a motorist observed a man standing by a large beige or tan vehicle with a flat tire parked alongside Route 350 in the town of Walworth, holding a girl he strongly believed to be Michelle by the wrist. Wow. So he's got a flat tire, and he's got this little girl by his side, and he's holding her tight. Mm -hmm. And this motorist actually stops to offer assistance. So this guy stops because somebody has a flat tire. Right. And there's a little girl who's naked from the waist down, and nobody stops. Right, yeah. Which makes absolutely no sense to me. Sure. But this motorist says that once he stops and says, hey, do you need any help? This guy deliberately, quote, grabbed the girl and pushed her behind his back, end quote. Hmm. And he also stood in front of his license plate, keeping the driver who stopped to, to even see what state it was yeah, from. Yeah. 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 That's hinky. Very hinky. And he also had, according to this witness, a menacing expression on his face that the driver thought, I, I got to get out of here. Yeah. It made him nervous. Sure. So he wanted to drive away. Yeah. Michelle's fully clothed body was discovered at 10.30 a.m. on November 28th by Eugene Vandewall, the fire chief of the Walworth Volunteer Fire Department, who was on his way to take a friend to see the new fire truck. Yeah. She was lying face down in a ditch alongside a rural road in Macedon, approximately 15 miles from Rochester. Okay. She looked like she had been rolled down the side of the hill. Her coat was found by a sheriff's deputy at 1 o'clock, also in a ditch along Eddy Road, about a half a mile from her body. And her autopsy revealed that in addition to having extensive blunt force trauma to her body, Michelle had been raped and then strangled to death from behind with a ligature, this time possibly a thin rope. Mm. And numerous strands of white cat fur were discovered on her clothing. That's okay. And leaves matching the leaves where her body is discovered are found inside one of her clenched fists. Mm. And that just meant that she had been strangled to death at or near the location where her body was found. Sure. Right. Investigators were able to retrieve a partial palm print from her neck and traces of semen upon her body and underwear. And a forensic analyst of the semen samples determined she had been raped by one person, one man. Mm. Now, an analysis of the contents of Michelle's stomach revealed traces of a hamburger and onions, which had been consumed about one hour before her murder. And this sort of gives credence to the earlier reports of a girl matching Michelle's description, having been seen in the company of this Caucasian man with dark hair, somewhere between the ages of 25 and 35, about six feet tall and weighing 165 pounds, because they were both seen at a fast food restaurant in the town of Penfield at about 4.30 p.m. on the afternoon of her disappearance. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And then again, alongside Route 350, just an hour later when they have a flat tire. Right. Now, after Michelle's murder, investigators release a composite drawing of this man that was seen with her by more than one eyewitness. Right. They give it to the media and they put up yet another hotline, but this one is devoted exclusively to the manhunt for this killer. Hmm. Now they interview 800 potential suspects. Wow. And here are the really 
weird similarities in this case. Okay. All three of the girls were around the same age, prepubescent, and they all disappeared from Rochester in the early afternoon when it was either drizzling or kind of raining. Okay. Each girl is discovered either fully clothed or partially clothed close to an expressway. All three were short. All had been raped prior to being strangled to death. All three were considered loners. All three were from poor Catholic families. Mm. Two of the girls had food in their stomachs, even though they'd eaten prior to leaving their homes or leaving from school. And the bodies are redressed after the murders. Wow. And then there's also the initials of all the girls, CC, WW, and MM, hmm. not to mention their bodies are found in areas of the same letter. Really? Hence, the alphabet killer. Oh, wow. All three lived in rundown areas of Rochester's inner city. Their families were split and receiving welfare. In every case, the father was absent. One of the children, Carmen Cologne, was known to be slightly mentally impaired. And there's reason to believe that Michelle Mayenza also was slightly mentally impaired. Okay. In Wanda's home, the Wachowitz home, there were indications of drunkenness and promiscuity, and their other daughter was already a habitual truant. Okay. Michelle Mayenza's mother seemed to her neighbors to be incapable of caring properly for her home or her children. Yeah. Michelle and her younger sister were tormented by their classmates because they were never really required to bathe regularly in their house. Wow. And their clothing was ragged, and they were dirty. That's sad. Now, in the case of Carmen Cologne, her uncle, Miguel Cologne, is considered by investigators to be a strong suspect in her murder case. Mm. Miguel was her paternal uncle. And following her parents' separation, he formed a relationship with Carmen's mom. Okay. Just weeks prior to Cologne's abduction and murder, her uncle is known to have purchased a car closely matching the vehicle seen by eyewitnesses. Really? Yeah. They thought that that kind of car was the same one that they saw reversing on Interstate 490 after Carmen when she's just naked from the waist down. Yeah. And investigators did conduct a search of his car right after her murder, and they discovered that the interior and the exterior of the car have been extensively cleaned, and the trunk had been washed with a strong cleaning solution. (laughs) Yeah. But then they went to the dealership that sold Miguel the car, and they said that the trunk had not been washed with detergent prior to the sale. Mm. Moreover, a doll belonging to her was also found in his car. Okay. And Carmen's relatives informed investigators she had frequently traveled in her Uncle Miguel's car and may have left the toy in the car. Really? Yeah. And according to a friend, just two days after the death of Carmen, Miguel told him that he was going to leave the country because he had, quote, done something wrong in Rochester, end quote. He relocated from Rochester to Puerto Rico just four days after the murder of his niece, Carmen. Wow. Now, investigators did travel to San Juan to question Miguel in March of 1972, And although local newspapers published articles detailing police intentions to question him, resulting in Miguel fleeing from authorities, Mm. he surrendered to authorities on March 26th and agreed to be extradited back to Rochester to face questioning. So what he's basically saying is, I left town because they were looking at me. Mm. 
Miguel Colon was unable to provide a credible alibi for his movements on the day that his niece was murdered. Right. And nobody could be located to corroborate his claims of where he was. And even though there's this strong circumstantial evidence, there was no physical evidence ever located at the crime scene or inside his car that would link him to the murder of Carmen. Yeah. Miguel committed suicide in 1991 at the age of 44 after an incident of domestic violence in which he shot and wounded both his wife and his brother. Wow. Yeah. Gee whiz. I actually read that the police were pursuing him and he just, he turned around and, and killed himself in front of them. Ugh. Wow. Now, one individual who was considered a strong suspect in the alphabet murders is a 25-year-old Rochester firefighter named Dennis Termini. Termini was a prolific serial offender known as the, quote, garage rapist, mm. who is known to have committed a minimum of 14 rapes of teenage girls and young Whoa. women between 1971 and 1973. Wow. He is also known to have owned a beige vehicle similar in description to the vehicle observed by all the eyewitnesses to the abductions. Really? So Miguel has a brown car and this Dennis guy, the Termini guy, the the firefighter, he also has a brown car. All right. Well, they had they had a composite drawing. Do either one of these guys look like the composite? Not really. Okay. Not really. Yeah. Moreover, He lived at an address on Box Street, which was an address that was really close to where Michelle was last seen alive. Michelle Mayenza. Right. Five weeks after the death of the final victim of the alphabet murders on January 1st, 1974, Termini attempted to abduct a teenage girl at gunpoint. Jeez. Although he fled the scene when the teenager refused to stop screaming. Hmm. Shortly thereafter, he abducted another potential victim, Although this time he's pursued by the police and Dennis Termini committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. Wow. So this is the second suicide. Gee whiz. Yeah. But they went through his brown car and there were no traces of a white cat or white cat fur on the upholstery. Yeah. I was going to ask about the cat. Nope. No white cat fur in either one of those cars. So they've gone all this time without any leads, without any suspects. Well, they have suspects, but they don't have any hard evidence that leads them to a killer. Sure. But technology has advanced, obviously. Right. And in January of 2007, Dennis Termini's body, the firefighter, was Mm -hmm. actually exhumed. Oh, wow. So they could get a DNA sample for comparison with the semen samples recovered from Wanda's body. Okay. And the results of this test confirmed... Termini was not responsible for her murder. Really? However, no physical evidence retrieved from the bodies of Carmen or Michelle exists for comparison Mm. for Termini's DNA. Okay. Another suspect in the alphabet murders is serial killer Kenneth Bianchi, who at the time of the murders worked as an ice cream vendor in Rochester. Okay. He's known to have worked at locations close to the first two murder scenes. Okay. And Bianchi relocated from Rochester to Los Angeles in January of 1976. And between 1977 and 1978, he and his cousin, Angelo Bueno Jr., committed Mm -hmm. the Hillside Strangler murders. Oh. Ten girls and young women between the ages of 12 and 28. Wow. So he was there. 
He's the hillside strangler, right. but he was in Rochester when these little girls were murdered. Okay. Bianchi was never charged with the alphabet murders, and he has vehemently denied that he had anything to do with these homicides. He's repeatedly attempted to have investigators officially clear him of suspicion of these murders. Mm -hmm. However, while he's residing in Rochester, he's known to have driven a vehicle that's brown (laughs) and the same model as the one seen near one of the abduction sites. Wow. In April 2011, a 77-year-old man named Joseph Nasso was arrested in Reno, Nevada for the murders of four women in California committed between 1977 and 1994, all of whom are believed to have been sex workers and each of whose surnames began with the same letter as that of their first name. Really? Just like the girls. Right. Nasso was a New York native who had lived in Rochester during the early 1970s and who was known to have regularly traveled between New York and California. Okay. So they think he's a person of interest right. in the alphabet murders. Sure. But the DNA testing has confirmed that he's not a match to the semen samples recovered from Wanda's body. Okay. Nasso was brought to trial on June 18th, 2013 and charged with the murder of the four California alphabet murder victims. He was unanimously convicted of each murder on August 20th. On November 22nd, 2013, he was formally sentenced to death. Okay. Now, profilers have gone back and looked at this case so closely. A couple of conclusions are that perhaps Carmen was not murdered by the same person who murdered Wanda and Michelle. Okay. And the reason behind that is both of these girls were fed. Both of these girls were cared for first. And both of these girls had white cat hair on their clothes. Right. And two, weren't they strangled from behind? Yes. Carmen was manually strangled by someone's bare hands from the front. Right. While Wanda and Michelle were both strangled with either a belt or rope. Right. Now, there are loads of people who say that the girls' names and the locations where their bodies are left, it's just happenstance. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's a lot of happenstance. Yeah, yeah. That's that's... a lot of C's. That's a lot of M's. That's a lot of W's. Right. But 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of these murders, and no one has yet been held accountable. Amazing. 50 years later, this case is open. Yeah. So if you have any information, they would like for you to contact the New York State Police. You can email them at nysvicap.com. At troopers.ny.gov. I will put that in the show notes. Yep. If anybody knows anything, please let them know. Yep. So still unsolved after 50 years, but I didn't want to forget about Carmen or Michelle or Wanda. Right. But that's the story of the alphabet killer. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, 
including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. Wow, it's hard to believe that 50 years later, they still don't have a single clue. Can you believe that? Yeah. 50 years later, they still don't have anything. And her poor relatives. I mean, I'm sure that her parents are now deceased, but... Yeah, these girls would have been in their mid-60s. Yeah. Well, their parents could still be alive. That's sad. Anyway, well, hopefully somebody will know something and say something. Yeah. Yeah, if you know anything, they're still looking for clues. If you lived in Rochester during that time, they're still looking for stuff. Or if somebody, like, bragged to you about it, you're still looking. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on and do a little, well, bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right, number one, is there a problem, officer? Is there a problem, officer? (laughs) An Indiana woman seemed to think she did nothing wrong despite stealing a car in order to travel. Here we go, to an interview for a stripper job, police say. It's an exotic dancer, honey. I'm sorry. But you can't steal a car to go do it. (laughs) Confronted by police, Casia Shelton, 20, acted like this whole thing was a joke and did not understand what she was going to be arrested for. Oh, what's going on? I don't get it. Is there a problem, officer? Yeah. According to the Muncie Police Department, police received a call about the theft of a 2013 Kia Optima from a Muncie dealership on Monday. WTTV reports. An employee claimed that they were preparing to arrange for Shelton to take a test drive. Oh. Yeah, but were distracted as the dealership kept getting phone calls. <gasps> though no one seemed to be on the other end of the line. Oh, really? <laughs> the employee reportedly told Shelton to wait while they went to answer yet another phone call. Let me go catch this phone real yeah. quick. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's when Shelton allegedly drove off in the Kia per yep. the messenger. Oh. Yeah. Did she get the job? <laughs> Cameras showed the vehicle easily traced to Shelton, who filled out a form on the dealership's website traveling south toward Indianapolis and later returning to Muncie, according to police. Okay. When officers showed up at Shelton's home, the woman initially lied about who she was, police say. She later admitted to stealing the car and driving some 60 miles to Indianapolis to interview for a job as an exotic dancer, but claimed it wasn't a big deal because she returned the vehicle to the dealership. I gave it back? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the documents indicated Shelton actually left the vehicle with the keys inside in a parking lot next door to the RDI Motors dealership. However, an RDA Motors employee said the vehicle was ultimately recovered in Anderson, about 20 miles from Muncie. Mm -hmm. Shelton reportedly told police she didn't know what happened to the vehicle and after she left it, but that she'd seen it on some BS Snapchat. I don't know. Yeah, she was arrested on felony charges of auto theft and identity deception and faces up to two and a half years in prison if convicted. Is a BS Snapchat a bullshit Snapchat? <laughs> That's what it is. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm not much on, I'm not up on Snapchat. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Number two, they'll never know. 
Oh, yes, they will. (laughs) Yes, they will. An armed robbery this week at a South Carolina convenience store apparently wasn't as armed as the clerk thought. Okay. CNN reports on the Tuesday incident at a quick stop in the small town of Sharon where a man donning a hoodie, wig, and mask entered the store around 5.45 p.m. per a release from the York County's Sheriff's Office. So I see him in like one of those old (laughs) 1970s plastic like Casper the Ghost mask and a really unruly blonde wig. (laughs) I'm sure that's I'm picturing this in my head. Okay. You're you're weaving a tail. You're painting a picture. I'm painting the picture. There you go. According to authorities, the suspect pointed the gun in his waistband and ordered the clerk to hand over, you know, whatever cash was in the register. It was about 300 bucks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Deputies tracked down DeLisandro in the parking lot of a nearby Dollar General and placed him under arrest. Okay. They say the pistol he used was tucked into his pants. Oh, except, I, can't, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> except it wasn't an actual pistol. Of course not. This is the great what thing. What was it? It was a fake gun used to play the Nintendo game Duck Hunt. <laughs> and he spray painted it black, which could appear, you know, to mean that Delisandro couldn't be busted for an actual armed robbery. I thought you were going to say it was like a banana in his pocket <laughs> no, or something. No, just the fact the word duck is in here just makes me laugh. What's it called again? What's the game called again? Duck Hunt. Duck Hunt. Yeah. Luke used to play that. Don't don't say that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Law and crime notes that in South Carolina, even the mere representation of possessing a deadly weapon. That is right. That a witness reasonably believes to be a real gun is enough to hit someone with those charges. Yep. If you pretend it's a gun, it's a gun. For the sheriff's office, D'Alessandro, who was charged with armed robbery with a deadly weapon. With a deadly banana. Duck, duck, goose, goose. goose. Petty larceny of less than $2,000 and wearing masks and the like is being held without bond in the York County Detention Center. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. I know. All right, number three. And finally, next time, yeah, you might want to bring an extension cord. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When trying to avoid headlines for criminal idiocy with a green flare, (laughs) you best remember one simple rule. Charge the EV in which you're attempting to flee the scene of your crime. (laughs) As Fox 5 reports, police say two would-be criminal masterminds robbed gaming systems from an unnamed store in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Okay. Responding officers were told that they fled in a Tesla. Okay. They put out a description to fellow cops. And wouldn't you know it? The devious two were located not far away from the crime scene, charging the aforementioned Tesla. Police say they were recovering the gaming systems along with several guns and what they believe is two pounds of marijuana. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, the suspects were not identified in a tweet applauding the work of the officers from the Gwinnett County Police Department. Yeah, they didn't have to look too far. Just find a charging station. (laughs) Dumb. Charge your electric car before you use it as your getaway vehicle. uh, They were trying to be classy. There you go. Yeah. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, all you have to do is go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu and you can also suggest a case. Yeah. That's all we have today. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.